We are looking at uh, relationships, and uh, this morning we're talking about relational risk takers and what it means in our lives and um, what it means for our relationships. And we're looking at it from the book of Philippians. And uh, so I'm going to get you to stand, if you will. And uh, I'm going to be reading the yellow, and uh, you're going to be reading the black. And this is what it says. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon. Now, I don't know if you pronounce it Philemon, but I pronounce it Philemon, and that's how we're going to do it. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of my own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, read slave there by the way, the ESV is being very generous, but more than a bondslave, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would if he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your own me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Beautiful. Let's pray again. Father, again, for your word, we are grateful and thankful for the written word and for the living word, Jesus Christ. And we ask in his name that you would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, hearts to understand, minds to comprehend your word, and particularly as we leave this place, as we go out into our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our homes and where it is that we get our education, and all those other things where we find ourselves during the week, that you would help us through the power of your Spirit to live out the truth of what it means to be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. We love you, we praise you, and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you be seated? Now, Philemon is one of those letters, one of those books in the Bible, one of those epistles that doesn't get much action. But it is a hidden gem when it comes to relationships. And that's why we're looking at it this morning. Now, in a nutshell, Philemon is a letter, it is a personal letter to a personal friend about a personal relationship that's gone sideways. Now, Philemon, just a little bit of background, he was a wealthy Christian in the city of Colossae, and in all likelihood, it is very possible that he became a Christian as a result of Paul's ministry while he was in the city. 
Now, on top of that, not only is a Christian, but Paul refers to him as a partner in the gospel. Now, what that basically means, we're not sure, but we think because he was wealthy that he was one of those people that funded Paul's missionary tours as he traveled around preaching the gospel. But one of the issues around the book of Philemon for us in the 21st century is that there's a problem. And the problem is simply this, that it's about a, the context of it, <clears throat> excuse me, the context of it is a very sensitive and difficult subject. Now, as I said, as we were reading through, the ESV uses the word bondservant, but that's very generous and somewhat sanitized. The word actually is slave. And one of the issues for us around reading the book of Philemon and using the book of Philemon and other places in the New Testament is this issue of slavery. And uh, it is one of the serious realities. But what I want to sort of help us with today is that we need to understand slavery in the context of the first century and in the context of the book of Philemon. Now, we know historically that Greece and Rome and other conquering nations had slaves. Matter of fact, there's some dispute around this, but they say, historians tell us that there were at least um, uh, possibly half of the Roman population and up to two-thirds of the Roman population were slaves, that there were three slaves for every Roman citizen. Matter of fact, one of the things that they worried about was that if the slaves ever got together and rallied, they would actually be able to bring down the Roman establishment. And so this existence of slavery is part of the context of the book of Philemon, and so we just need to be aware of what we're we're talking about and also understanding one other thing. When we talk about slavery, we usually use it in reference to American slave trade, which was the, uh, where they went to Africa and other places in the world, and they, they dragged people from their homes and families and made them be slaves. When we talk about slaves in the New Testament, when we talk about slaves in the Bible, it's not that kind of slavery necessarily. The slaves that we're talking about here are those who were conquered peoples, conquered nations, And these people were slaves, were uh, taken as spoils of war. Now, none of that justifies anything. None of that justifies the fact that there were slaves and we could never endorse that. But the reality is that it was a very different world in the first century than our world today. Now, Onesimus is a runaway slave. Now, in that culture, in that time, in that society, that to run away as a slave was considered a criminal act. And if that slave was caught, that slave could not only be um, punished, that slave actually could be put to death. But we know that Onesimus runs away. He is a slave. We don't know where he's from. We don't know much about him. We do know a little about his future, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But we know that he ran away from Philemon in Colossae, and he makes his way to Rome. And when he makes his way to Rome, he somehow runs into Paul, or Paul runs into him. And by the way, 
Paul now is now in prison in Rome because of his proclamation of the faith. This is toward the end of Paul's life. And so somehow Onesimus and Paul's lives intersect and he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Philemon, what's unique about Philemon is that it is the closest that we have in the New Testament to a personal letter that's written to a personal friend about a personal relationship that's gone sideways. And it is really a plea for grace. What Paul is hoping here is that Philemon would become a living illustration of the grace Onesimus has already experienced in Jesus Christ. So Philemon the book is a message about forgiveness. It is a message about second chances. It's a message about mercy. It's a message about equality in Christ. It's a message about the power of the gospel to transcend social boundaries. It's a message. And the undercurrent of the message is the social change that can take place because of the power of the gospel. It's a book that talks about, and the message of it is talks about a spirituality of imperfection. And Christians, you and I, like everyone else, we face the crucible of testing when we find ourselves in situations where our relationships or our relationship is broken. But the difference for us and other people is this, that we are not left on our own just to fix our relationships. We have the power of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have the power of the gospel to help us. American President John Kennedy once said, made the statement, the famous statement, that a rising tide lifts all boats. And this is a story about the rising tide of the gospel of Jesus Christ lifting three boats at least. Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon. But the power of the gospel is also about a tide that lifts you and I to help us to be able to manage our relationships, that the power of the gospel helps us and challenges us and changes us at different levels in our personal relationships, whether it be with our spouses or with our parents, with parent and children, whether it be with siblings, whether it be with employer employees, whether it be with our co-workers, or whether it be church member to church member, Christian brothers and Christian sisters, whether we are the offender or we are the offended or we are the observer. The power of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, is that the rising tide of it lifts all of us into a different reality of relationships and broken relationships. So in a nutshell, the message of Philemon is when relationships, when our relationships are in chaos, it will take some risk and some risk-taking to bring them back into order. 
And so we're looking today at the story of three relational risk takers. The first one is the Apostle Paul, the reconciler. Now, they tell me that getting in between two quarreling people is a very problematic place to be. Matter of fact, I'm told by police officers, and if you're a police officer, you could probably verify this, that one of the most difficult situations to get called into is a domestic disturbance between a husband and a wife, between spouses. That it is laden with landmines because two enemies will come together to attack a common, sorry, to, to, will become allies to attack a common enemy. And so getting in the middle of two quarreling parties can be a very precarious situation. But Paul is willing to be the go-between. Paul, as the reconciler, or wanting to reconcile, puts himself in the place of vulnerability. Now, you've heard it said that it takes two to tangle. Not tango, but it takes two to do that too. But two to tangle. Now, we often say, you know, we talk about innocent parties in marriages, and, well, that's debatable whether there actually are or not, but one of the statements is, is that it takes two to make it and it takes two to break it. But sometimes it takes two to quarrel and it takes a third to bring about reconciliation. And so Paul takes the initiative. He writes to Philemon and he says that he wants him to open his heart and hope in his life to the idea of Onesimus coming back. Now, Onesimus could have said, or Paul could have said something like this, well, you know what, I've led Onesimus to the Lord. It's between Onesimus and Philemon whether or not they're going to reconcile. But Paul takes action. Paul goes out of his way. He gets involved to see two Christian brothers reconcile. And so Paul acts as a mediator. He acts as a go-between between two brothers who are not at peace, and he takes the initiative. And brothers and sisters, I want to suggest to you and I this morning that there are times in our lives where we look around and we see relationships in disarray, and God calls us to take the initiative to get involved, to be a part of the healing process. But we should also be reminded of this, that if we are going to take initiative, we should not be naive because there is a cost to getting involved. And the cost for Paul was twofold. First of all, there was a personal cost in releasing Onesimus back to Philemon. He says in verse 12, he says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Paul would have liked nothing more than to say, you know what? Who cares about Philemon? Onesimus is of a great advantage to me, and I'm going to keep him here. The other thing we notice is this. Not only is there the potential for personal cost in our lives, there is also the potential financial loss. We read in verse 18, if he has wronged you, Paul says, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. 
I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. So he has volunteered that if Onesimus owes Philemon anything, and obviously he does, Paul says, I am going to pay it. This is like the good Samaritan who takes the person who is hurt and beaten and broken and brings them to the inn. And the Bible says he uses his own money so that the person gets the care that he needs. He's willing to absorb personal cost. And for us, to follow Paul's example, we must be willing to be vulnerable We must be willing to take initiative, and we must be willing to absorb the cost. Somebody said this, the gospel challenges and changes social status. So here is Paul, a highly educated Jewish rabbi, former, and a Roman citizen championing the cause of a runaway, destitute slave, whose life, by the way, is expendable. Now, the second risk-taker that we see here is Onesimus, the repentant returner. Peacemaking and reconciliation requires us sometimes to get involved, to be a part of the process. But reconciliation and restoring broken relationships can only happen if people are willing to reconcile. Now, Onesimus is an example of what we should do when somebody sins against us or we have sinned against somebody else, particularly when we have sinned against somebody else. First of all, he listens to the Holy Spirit. And he also listens to Paul. There's no evidence in the text anywhere that Onesimus makes up some sort of excuse to sort of justify his behavior. You know, he could have said, well, you know what, Uh, why should I return? When I was back there, I was just a slave. I wasn't free, but I am free here. There's none of that. He returns without excuse, and he goes out of his way to ask for forgiveness. So to see peace restored to broken relationships, to see our broken relationships restored to health, there must be a willingness to repent. There must be a willingness to return. There must be a willingness to be reconciled. But here, too, there is a cost. And the cost here involved in reconciliation is a bit different. And I want you to listen now and put your seatbelts on. Freedom in Christ, becoming a Christian, does not absolve you and me 
of our earthly debts and responsibilities. Now, God has wiped clean Onesimus's, Onesimus's, Onesimus's past. Say that five times without saying something wrong. God has wiped out Onesimus's past. But he needed to make it clean with another. Now, I don't know if this is accurate, and I probably told you about this before, but you know that the Jewish um, people, Judaism, has this thing called the Day of Atonement in September and October, right? It's a national holiday. And the Day of Atonement is when they come and they ask forgiveness of God. Now, somebody told me that on the day before the Day of Atonement, there is this thing called a rev. The day of Erev, E-R-E-V. And the day of Erev is the day on the eve of the Day of Atonement. It's the day before when you ask God for forgiveness. And Erev is the day when you ask other people for their forgiveness. So here's the point. Before we can ask God of forgiveness, the Jews say, you must first ask your brothers and sisters, fellow human beings, their forgiveness. Now, the cost involved in this situation with Onesimus is the issue of restitution. Now, I want you to follow me because there's a point to be made here. Restitution, most of us know what it means, but just in case you don't, restitution means, it literally means, that if any property is broken or stolen, you have to restore it. The New Testament, sorry, not New Testament, the Old Testament had all kinds of guidelines and rules to show the people of Israel, if, if for example, if um, I accidentally killed Kyle's ox, then I had to repay him seven. Or if I borrowed a tool of yours and broke it, then I have to restore it. I have to do restitution. So the question here becomes then, what is the restitution involved when we talk about facing debts and responsibilities and the consequences and crimes and sins that we have committed? What's the restitution cost? Well, I want you to think about it in another context now, in our 21st century context. What's the restitution factor, cost? When we have said things to other people, defaming our ex-spouse, or our ex-boss, or our ex-friend, or a former, God forbid, brother or sister in Christ. What is the restitution factor? When we have posted it on Facebook and tweeted it and Instagrammed it, when we have immortalized it on the internet, how do we do restoration with these things. How do we undo what we have insinuated, what we have accused, what we have said? 
How do we undo what we've posted, what we've tweeted, what we've Instagrammed? And in an age of social media, how do we face up to what we've said, done, and caused? How do we offer restitution? In an age of social media, to resolve conflict God's way. In Paul's time, in Onesimus' time, actions exemplify the cost of repenting and seeking reconciliation. He had to leave Rome and travel 1,000 miles to Colossae. He had to leave Paul. And get this, you ready for this? Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 9 tells us, now, remember what we read a moment ago in Philemon? Paul says, I write this with my own hand. This is a handwritten letter. Not typed, not emailed. This is handwritten. And here's part of the restitution. Not only did Onesimus have to leave Rome and Paul and travel a thousand miles to get to Philemon, Paul gave him the letter. And so when he showed up on Philemon's door back to his old master, he had to hand Philemon Paul's written letter. Would Philemon receive him? Would Philemon forgive him or would he punish Onesimus? Onesimus has no idea. But he owned what he was responsible for. And I suggest to all of us that if you and I are going to bring peace and healing and reconciliation to our broken relationships... We have to own what we are responsible for. I have to own what I am responsible for. And you have to own what you are responsible for. Now, the third relational risk taker is Philemon, the receiver. Now, in a culture without slavery, it's hard for us to understand the magnitude of Paul's request to Philemon. A slave owner to receive his runaway slave as a Christian brother instead of a slave? And receiving this ex-slave as a now Christian brother would demand the maximum grace and forgiveness. But we know that the gospel challenges and changes the status quo in culture. Now what's interesting and what most people may not pick up is this. By doing this, by Paul asking Philemon to do this, Paul is undermining the discriminatory attitude at the heart of slavery where other people are used for our benefit. And he's doing this by identifying Onesimus's true identity as a dearly loved Christian brother. 
Paul writes in verse 18, he says that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, no longer as a slave, but more than a bondservant or slave, but as a beloved brother. And by saying that, Paul sets the footing of slave-master relationship in a whole new context. And here it is. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. The gospel challenges and changes how we serve and how authority is handled. It's not on the basis of demand and command, but on the basis of willingness and choice. So Paul forgoes his apostolic right. Actually, Paul has the right, by the way, to say to Philemon, you need to do this. No ifs, ands, or buts. But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't demand and command that he do it. He is asking Philemon for a voluntary response. He gives him, gives Philemon the freedom to respond in the way that he thinks is right. And he empowers Philemon to develop his own sense of moral responsibility. And Philemon, bless his heart, responds with a willingness to receive. He was that kind of person. And you know how we know this? Here's a shocker. We know, according to um, the Bishop of Antioch in Syria, we know that as time moved forward, Onesimus becomes the Bishop of Ephesus. Historians are pretty sure that the Onesimus in the book of Philemon is the same Onesimus that becomes a leader in the Christian church in the first and second century. And who knows? Maybe the foundational stone to Onesimus becoming a great church leader was the way in which Paul, he, and Philemon process this broken relationship. But that brings us to this, doesn't it? That people can change. But we have to be willing to allow people to change. Paul says in verse 11 in in the parentheses, he says, formerly he was useless to you, talking about Onesimus to Philemon, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And so by saying this, Paul highlights the difference the gospel makes in a person's life. Do you know what the name Onesimus means? It means useful. Useful. Isn't that a great play on words? Thomas Edison must have been a phenomenal man. I didn't know this before. I just found this out. 
When he was developing the light bulb, and you probably know that uh, the story is that there were they, they, there was a thousand attempts at trying to get this light bulb invented. So they had spent a number of weeks developing this particular light bulb, and when they finally got it developed. Edison gave the light bulb to uh, one of the young workers there. He was just a kid, but he was sort of an errand person. And he said to the kid, I want you to run this up to the testing lab. And the kid takes it, and as he's making his way up the steps, he stumbles, and the light bulb drops and smashes on the steps. Now, I don't know about you, but that would try my patience. Edison said nothing, apparently, and said to his workers, we got to redo this. They spent the next two weeks recrafting what this young Aaron boy broke on the steps. And this is Edison. You know what Edison did when they finally finished the bulb? He gave it to the same young worker and said, would you bring this up to the testing room? And he did, didn't drop it this time, I wouldn't imagine. It just goes to tell us that everybody deserves forgiveness. Everybody deserves a second chance. Everybody deserves grace. And that people can change. The gospel challenges and changes how we view, how we see other people. And Philemon demonstrates the power of the gospel to transform lives. Not just his, but Onesimus. And then the gospel challenges and changes how we value You know what the hope of the gospel is? The hope of the gospel is this. That I can change. The hope of the gospel is this. That you can change. We can change. Folks, I am so thankful that people do not look at me like I was when I was 17 years old. Because I've changed. And aren't you glad that people don't look at you when you were whatever? Because you've changed. And the power of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, is that we change. People change. And we can continue to change. And there are times as reconcilers, when we need to take action and we need to get between people at odds. And there are other times when we need to acknowledge our sins and own our responsibility and we need to go to the offended person and say, I'm sorry, can we fix this? And there are times as well when those people come to us that our response is grace, mercy, a second chance, 
another chance forgiveness. Does that make sense? That's the hope of the gospel. Stand with me if you would. Father, in a moment, I'm going to ask us some questions. But before I do that, I know that you're here. Father, I know that in Jesus Christ, through the Spirit, you are here. You are as close as close can get. So much so that you even know what I'm thinking right now. You know our pain. You know our brokenness. You know how human we are. And Lord, you know that we know that we need compassion without condemnation. Compassion without condemnation. We practice a spirituality of imperfection. But Lord, we all go through life at times and there's broken relationships that need reconciliation. And so we recognize today that while you were here long before us and you're here right now, we just want to pause and acknowledge your presence through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, this now is your domain, this next moment. We give it to you. In our hearts, in our minds, in our relational activities, in our interaction. Help us, we pray. Give us courage and strength to follow through on what we're about to be asked. Christ's name. Just keep your eyes closed, if you will. Even those of you that are watching on the internet, you can close your eyes too. And I'm just going to ask you three questions. Actually, I'm going to ask us three questions. Is there any relationship around us where we need to act as the go-between? Is there any relationship that God is calling us to be reconcilers, to take the initiative? Just think about that for a moment in your own personal life now. Number two, is there a relationship that is broken and you need to take initiative to bring peace and reconciliation? Now, this is where the gospel, this is where becoming a Christian, really, the rubber meets the road, isn't it? And number three, has somebody come to you and asked you for forgiveness, and you have been withholding? You have been holding that person at bay because, for some reason, you want to punish him or her. And if that's you today, would you consider not doing that and receiving that person with grace and mercy, compassion without condemnation, and restoring that relationship? 
I'm not asking anybody to raise their hands. I'm not going to ask anybody to come forward. But would you consider, if you're in either of those situations, would you consider doing this for the sake of Jesus Christ? So, Father, we now lay ourselves at your feet. Lead us, guide us, do with us that which glorifies Jesus Christ and exalts the church to the place of being more like Jesus. This we pray for Christ's sake and the beauty and the glory of his name. 